Welcome back everybody. This is a new episode and it's going to be probably one of the biggest and most debatable topics that I've ever put out. What this means is that I am not, I need to make this clear, I am not discluding Reformed theology as good or bad. I'm saying this is the way I see it. Um, Reformed theology has a different discourse than most of the Jewish uh, faith, as it, things have gone from the Jewish faith to Christianity through ca uh, Catholicism, and from Catholicism to Protestants, and uh, when the Protestant Reformation happened, different theologies started to evolve. From this concept of Reformed theology, there's been many discourses that have clashed with each other and this is just to give you informed um, information based on reformed theology so we're gonna understand the concepts of what reformed theology is which reformed theologies they, there are that are existing and from the existence of Reformed theology, what the actual Bible says. And not just what the Bible says, but what the Jewish people believed from the Bible versus others. Now, there has been different discourses that believe, much like the, uh, the Muslims, that the Jewish people themselves, or Israel itself, has lost their covenant and from that it is based on the election of people um, in that sense that means that this is where it gets really interesting is that we have different uh, various topics so why well, we're going to start is basically we're going to go into aspects of Calvinism, Armenianism, and different uh, parts of this to understand what they believe. So, when we look at this, we have to understand the major Protestant theological systems, Calvinism, Arminianism, Lutheranism, and Angelicanism. When we look at this, Calvinism is defined um, by a system of theology that was um, developed by writings of a Protestant reformer, John Calvin, who lived in the 16th century. He developed the teachings of the ancient third church theologian Augustine of Hippo. Now Augustine of Hippo has been known to fall under the Catholic uh, the Catholic belief systems. Now Calvin would take the belief system on the teachings of the Word of God alone instead of anything else, but he emphasizes it on the sovereignty or control of God, and human obedience to God's command can only come to those who God has chosen and bestowed grace upon. Human beings don't have any compatibility in and of themselves to respond to God's call, only those he um, elected and redeemed for or forgiven for their sins. So essentially what 
Calvinism is trying to say from this um, definition is he took the theology of St. Augustine, Catholic Church, uh, which was around 353 to 430 AD. Um, as we know in early church history, um, the Catholic Church was basically defined around 325 AD during um, Constantine's reign and followed suit under the Council of Nicaea. When Calvin comes into place uh, in the 16th century, he takes Augustine's theology and he looks at God's sovereignty in the Bible and says, well, God elected p people in the Bible to carry out his will. And we don't have free will. We don't have any of this. You know, God has basically put grace upon us to do what, you know, he wants us to do. So Calvinism has been defined and uh, simplified in five major points called TULIP. And the acronym TULIP represents um, the theological system uh, of Calvinism. And Calvinism is one of the most popular um, doctrines in Reformed theology. A lot of people that are Calvinists just say Calvinism is scripture. So let's actually uh, uh, understand this. So the idea of Calvinism is um, T for total depravity of humanity. It teaches that Human beings are basically, um, we're deprived. And there's absolutely nothing in us that can merit or gain salvation for ourselves. This includes exercising faith. God must forgive each, um, each of us the faith to believe. Total depravity, for a better defined words, is inability. What it basically amounts to is sinners are dead, deaf, and blind to the things of God. Humanity, um, the human heart is deceitful, and humans will suffer under the bondage of sin. Since uh, the human um, has no f is not free, none of us will be able to choose good over evil in the realm of the spirit. Um, unconditional election. So, what this means is that humans cannot do anything to save themselves. God, without any conditions, elected certain people for salvation. This occurred in eternity past. This is the choice that has not to been determined for um, foreseeing human belief or behavior. It was a sovereign choice of God without any conditions. So, God is the one who chooses who will live and who will die, who will go to heaven and who will go to hell before we were even born. We do not have any assurance or anything that we can do to stop that. Um, limited atonement. So, as we know that Christ came to die for our sins, Calvinism said he died only for the elect or those who he specifically chose to believe in him. Therefore, his death and atonement is limited only to those he has chosen. This is also known as um, definite atonement. Uh, I, for irresistible grace, since humana, humans have no capacity 
to control the call um, to respond to the call of God he must draw them for himself for salvation therefore he sends the Holy Spirit to regenerate them and this is work of the Holy Spirit is irresistible in the sense that the elect will always respond to the call they have no choice in the matter um, preservance of the saints would be the P for those he have called and chosen and died for he will also keep until the end the elect cannot uh, lose their salvation simply because it's God who saves them and keeps them saved it is not a human effort and essence um, what he's saying is we cannot lose our inheritance to heaven we cannot we will always go to heaven regardless of what we do we cannot lose our salvation so to sum it up in a simple uh, way uh, tulips stand for again total depravity or inhumi inability of the human race. It its implications of the original sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden, Adam himself as well as all his physical descendants were born with this fallen image. Unconditional election um, asserts that God has chosen in eternity certain human beings for salvation. This selection was based on his sovereign choice. Limited Atonement teaches us that the death of Jesus Christ was intended to save those whom God has unconditionally elected out of the deprived human race. I is the irresistible grace that is aimed for those particular humans whom God has chosen for salvation. They are not able to resist his call to faith in Christ. And P is the preservance of the saints, which basically says that because Christ died for specifically, um, they will they must respond to the call of the Holy Spirit and will remain in faith and be faithful to Christ until the end of their lives, and that sums up Calvinism. So, the the issue is is when we look at Calvinism, we're basically saying that we do not have a choice. We can't reject Christ because it's the Holy Spirit that draws us to him. With our being drawn to Christ, we do not have a specific point in our lives where we can actually choose him. It just comes to us. Now, I was born and raised as a Christian person, you know. But I didn't fully come into Christ until I was maybe in my mid-twenties, you know. And why that happened was because although I always believed in God and I always loved Jesus and I always loved, you know, everything that the, the Bible stood for, I did have a dark side to myself. And what that means is I was very into, now, don't get me wrong, I wasn't one of those people that, you know, thought I was one of these, but I loved vampire movies, I loved horror movies, I loved the aspect of um, the occult, I loved all this kind of stuff when I was a kid, and it wasn't so much because I wanted to be 
part of that. It was because when I was a kid, I actually wanted to be an exorcist. Because when I was young, my mom would show me movies on, um, like, the Amityville Horror and stuff like that. And you'd see, like, a priest and stuff go into a house and you'd see all these, like, shadows and demon things, like, coming out. And he'd, like, throw a cross at them or, you know, raise his cross and stuff. And then they'd all disappear and stuff. And that amazed me that anything that was supernatural was unable to resist God. And that's where it led me down the path of you know, the occult and everything, where I wanted to know more about that. And it had nothing to do with me wanting anything to do with being a part of the demonic, but more along the lines of me wanting to fight the demonic as a kid. But when I was in my 20s, I went through a lot of different things, and um, it was... God that really helped me through it all, and that's where I decided to devote my life completely to God, not any po point of exorcism, not any point of the occult, but me devoting my life straight to Him. Um, to this point, uh, we're understanding uh, Calvinism uh, as its whole. And where Calvinism is coming into place, um, we are going to move on to uh, the different um, decrees um, that have came out throughout over uh, throughout time. So Augustinianism, which uh, was under um, modernism, um, basically talks about salvation, a future result of life where God's grace, works, faith, holiness, and uh, the use of the church's sacraments is uh, what leads to salvation. The uh, assurance of salvation is not there. Um, it's basically voided out. The election or predestination reprobation is the election it, based on God's good pleasure has not been foreseen works or faith reprobation is based on uh, predetermination but damnation is due to sin election is to eternal life via holy life human bondage to sin and understanding the original sin in bondage hence grace must do everything Original sin brings lack of the original righteousness, making us ill and wounding our will. So where does the human contribution come in with all of this? We, we must live a righteous life and make the church uh, sacraments. However, all of this righteousness is a result of God's grace, and the justification is a lifelong process being made righteous. Um, Augustinianism, again, is a point of Calvin, um, not Calvinism, but, um, but Catholicism, which eventually went, um, through, uh, um, uh, Pelagi uh, Pelagiism, um, I probably butchered the name of that, and they had semi, uh, Pelagarianism, uh, Pelagarianism, and then semi-Pelagarianism 
Then the second Council of Orange around 325 AD came into place. All this after Augustinianism went into synergianism. Um, as we go through um, these ancient ones, like these really old ones, we're going to just go straight through to Roman Catholicism, which, um, again, is based on uh, synergianism. Largely in accord with the Second Council of Orange, um, the assurance is not possible. Um, they believe that predestination is basically a various divergent theories tolerated providing it is affirmed that God desires the salvation of all. Um, the human bondage to sin is partial bondage, people's free will um, attenuated but not extinguished. Adam's fall to a loss uh, uh, fall leads to a loss of Adam's superadded original righteousness, hence the descendants of are still fully human. Where does uh, the human contribution come in at life? It is basically as for the Second Council of Orange, the sacraments are a channel through which God's grace flows and is received. And it's a lifelong process. And um, basically throughout the majority of all this, is it basically evolved from uh, synergianism into Catholicism. Now a big um, difference on this is Augustin Augustinianism was um, modernism versus synergianism. So when we look at this and we parallel it to Calvinism and uh, Luther on Reformed theology, um, they went back to mo monergianism, which when we look at it, they look at salvation as those regenerated and brought to faith are justified and will preserve their faith in the final judgment will vin uh, vindicate their justification as it continues for assurance of salvation assurance is the usual Christian experience but some may lack it um, then predestination as for Augustinianism except elected to final salvation via faith. Um, election is to eternal life via faith and a holy life. When we reflect it to Augustinianism, election is based on God's good pleasure, not foreseen works or faith. Reprobation is based on um, pre-tradition, uh, pre, uh, but damnation is due to sin. Election is to eternal life via holy life. So when we look, we can see parallels in Augustinianism for Lutheran Calvinism because they moved away from synergianism. And when we understand what synergianism is, we uh, reflect that to, again, um, Synergianism was like a multi-format way versus uh, a monetary way with sovereignty. When we reflect going forward in human bondage for Calvinism, in bondage grace must bring us to faith for we are dead in its trespasses and sins. Original sin also involves 
imputed guilt. Fallen people have a defaced, not destroyed image of God. Christians will not obtain sinless perfection. Therefore, the contribution comes in. God's grace alone works to ensure the elect are brought to um, Salvanic faith by regeneration, by the Holy Spirit. Regenerated believers live a holy life. When a person comes to faith, he or she is declared righteous in God's um, sight, correctly anticipating the final judgment. So when we understand this, the Reformed theology of Calvinism and Luther ended up saying when a person comes to faith. Um, from there we have the Orthodox Church, which um, again was a part uh, of Lutheranism, which was post-Luther, so after Luther has passed away and all that, um, which went back into syn uh, synergianism. The Evangelical Armenianism went back to synergianism, and rationalistic uh, Armenianism went back to synergianism. To understand these concepts, um, there's uh, three major talk points. Um, Armenianism <coughs> states that 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6, and 1 John 2, verse 2, the good news says Christ died for our sins of all people. Armenianism believes in that. Calvinism does not. Lutheranism does believe in that. The good news says that all for whom Christ died have already been reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5:18 through 19. Armenianism does not believe in that. Calvinism does, and Lutheranism does. The good news promises all who hear it, your sins will be forgiven. That follows under Mark uh, 2, uh, verse 5 and 9, um, Luke 5:20 and 7, uh, 48, and John 20, 20, uh, 20, verse 21 through 23. When we understand that, again, Armenianism does not believe in that. Calvinism does not believe in that, but Lutheranism does. So we have a reflection of what these are. So we go into the compare and contrast of Calvinism and um, Armenianism. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and um, preservance of the saints. All five points of Calvinism. The five points of Armenianism is free will. Basically, that people do have the free will to either cooperate with God's spirit and be regenerated or resist God's grace and perish. Conditional election. God's election is based upon his foreknowledge. He chooses everyone whom he uh, he knew would, um, of their own free will, respond to the gospel and choose Christ. Unlimited atonement. When Christ died on the cross, he shed his blood for everyone. He paid a provisional price for all, but guaranteed it for none. Um, Resistible grace was saving grace can be resisted because God will not overrule man's free will. Man is born again 
when he believes and receives God's grace. Falling from grace um, is the final point of Armenianism, which is those who are truly saved can lose their salvation by falling from the faith. Not all Armenians agree on that point, but believe um, that believers are eternally secure in Christ and cannot be lost. This is also, again, another talking point to Calvinism as basically the elect cannot lose their salvation. Once saved, always saved. When we look at the uh, evangelicalism points, where we look at what the points that most Christians agree with, uh, the five points of Calvinism, the main point would be total depravity. Man is totally deprived, spiritually dead, and blind, which reflects um, Romans 3, 10 through 11. There is none righteous, not even one. There is not one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. It is true that man is totally unrighteous, but does not that doesn't mean he is unable to repent or call out to be saved. And then free will. Uh, man is a sinner who has the free will to either cooperate with God's spirit and be regenerated or resist God's grace and perish. Second Peter, the Lord is, and not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Romans 10.13 will also explain Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God wants everyone to be saved, but only save those who will call out to him on their own free will. That is a, the free will point is Armenianism. So now we have a compare and contrast of Armenianism versus Calvinism. Um, me personally, I don't technically follow under either of these doctrines. Um, I will get to my personal beliefs at the end of this point, and even though my personal beliefs probably do have flaws, mine is based in fully rooted within the Bible. It's not outside of any other doctrines. So, um, as we continue going through this, we're going to look at origins and where all these uh, different points came from. Calvinism was started around 1530 by John Calvin in Switzerland. His belief was predestination and a world is full of sin. The authority was the Bible, laws, and pastors, which rules five services a week. Wow. Five services a week. I really want to know how many Calvinists today actually attend five services a week. Um, and uh, community, strict society of rules. Lutheranism was created by Martin Luther who wanted to reform the Catholic Church. His belief was salvation received by faith alone. Um, authority was the Bible. Rituals was a combo between the old Catholic and new rituals. Now, old Catholicism um, was very interesting history. A lot of people would reflect old Catholicism with the early church. 
the early church was actually not Catholic in um, in history, but I'm assuming around the 1500s and everything that because of the lack of a better term of um, history and the Catholic Church basically condoning or having control over the majority of the world kept people uneducated to the history of that lineage of the early church and then taking that early church history and intertwining it into Catholicism. And even to say, hypothetically, that Catholicism was, at one point, very true to what Lutheranism is, here's the difference. After the 325 AD uh, with Constantine, the Council of Nicaea, and so on, their monotheism and our everything became to be a more polytheistic uh, format when the saints and everything came into place. So the rituals um, for Lutheranism was a combo between the old Catholics and new rituals. The community was strict discipline for families, including prayer and marriage. Angelicanism, which was the Church of England, was founded by King Henry um, VIII in around 1534 in England. his beliefs was original sin, faith, and good works. Um, his authority was the King of Eng- England and the Bible. The rituals was the High Church, Catholic-like, and Low Church, the Lutheran-like. So Luther and um, the High Church, the, so they had like a high one where like the rich people would probably go, and then the Low Church where the peasants would go. And Luther, uh, or the Lutheran ways, were more for the uh, lower-end people, and then the high church was for the higher-end people. The community was high communities. It was basically lavished and rich life. Um, The Anabaptists, which was um, founded by founded in uh, Zwingli, Switzerland, in fi- uh, 1525. Uh, they believed in adult baptism. The world is sinful. Stay out of the world. Um, the authority was the New Testament of the Bible alone. The rituals were two sacraments, baptism and communion. And their community was a simple, isolated life. And then Catholicism, which has been stated to start um, by uh, Pope Paul III, by um, the Jesuit priests, um, the uh, original sin, faith, and good works were their beliefs. Their authority is the Pope and the Bible. The rituals are seven sacraments, and their community is placed importance on priests and nuns and doing good works so they put importance on their own uh, people made you do seven sacraments and they looked at original sin faith and good works um one thing that's interesting is when i was looking up all this stuff they don't actually tell us the date you know of all this stuff 
So when we um, when we try to understand when all this came in, uh, Pope Paul the Third, right, um, was around fourteen sixty-eight to uh, fifteen forty-nine. And um, to understand that, that's not fully where Catholicism started, but this is where I believe that the J suits started, if I remember correctly. Um, so the J suits um, were actually part of the um, Spanish soldiers who turned priest in um, in uh, the August of 1534, which um, again took vows and poverty, chastity, and made plans to work for the conversion of Muslims. So the Jesuits, uh, I'm assuming that the Catholicism of Pope Paul III origins, they're looking straight to this based on the specific location of all these areas. Switzerland, uh, you know, England, you know, again, another Switzerland with the Anabaptists. So um, the Jesuits and stuff being formed by the um, Spanish and stuff, I think that is where um, a lot of this has been originated from. And these are just a small part of the community that I was looking at to try to give you guys some insight. There's a lot more that goes into this. But I would be here, you know, <laughs> basically uh, the in the entire day to give you guys like a 10-hour sermon on this. Um, so when Calvinism explains predestination, they go into eternal life is foreordained for some and eternal damnation for others. Um... Every man, therefore, being created for one or the other of these ends, we say he is predestined to either life or death. So, essentially, let's say you die right now, today, right? If you died today and you stood before God, God would look, look at you and everything and basically say, okay, you're going to hell, and then you're like, but I believe, I've been a good Christian, I've done everything that you've asked me to, and then God says, well, no, basically, um, I chose the people who were going to come, and you were not one of them, even though you did believe, and I do appreciate you believing in, you know, my son and everything, and, you know, and I know you read the Bible every single day, you went to church every day, you know, you prayed, you gave to the poor, you didn't live in this world, you know, you went to work, you came home, you provided for your family, you did everything you could do, you never were violent to anybody, you know, and uh, those works and everything that you've done are great, and everything that you believed and everything you did for your church and for the community and even for, you know, trying to bring people to God and my spirit you know 
was just definitely like in you because you definitely helped everybody, but I didn't elect you. <laughs> That's essentially what most people believe about Calvinism. So when most people look at Calvinism and they base that on that, they're they're like, okay. So even if we don't have free will, God will choose us. So everything that we do for God does not matter. You know, anything that we want to do to help others, anything that we want to do to make him happy, anything that we want to do to just be a Christian and be walking the path of Christ and everything and worship God and everything. And that is just completely, you know, it doesn't make a difference. It's God already predestined us, even if we're good in the spirit or if we're not. But what I believe Calvinism is trying to state is that we don't have free will on where the spirit comes. Once the spirit hits us, we do we we lose our free will. Um, essentially saying that we don't have free will. We're already basically chosen or not. And when our time comes that the Holy Spirit will descend upon his elect, then we're saved and we don't have to worry. But that to me has a lot of flaws. And the, the argument that most Calvinisms believe, or Calvinists believe, is, well, we don't know the ways of God. So we can't define that. And I sit here and I think to myself, I'm like, okay, so I know we can never think toward God, but if we don't have free will, then we can't choose God. And if we can't choose God, and you're saying this is just God's will, and you're saying Calvinism is scripture, then how come Calvinism isn't in scripture? That's where a lot of things come. If Calvinism was based off doctrines and theological references of St. Augustine, of Hippo, then we have to understand that his theology is rooted from another source and reformed in his own interpretation. Calvinism is just an interpretation of the Bible. It is not scripture. You have to understand that. The time, when you understand Calvinism is not scripture, and it's a doctrine outside of the Bible that basically interprets it for you, then you understand that there are pros and cons. There are flaws in this doctrine. Just like there's many flaws in the Catholicism doctrine. Just like there's many flaws in many doctrines that come out of the Bible. There's not been a doctrine itself that has been perfect. And Calvinism is not perfect. Armenianism is not perfect. Especially the post-Armenianism. Because when we reflect post-Armenianism... Um, basically, when we look at the evangelical um, Armenianism and the rationalistic Armenianism, or Finneyism, or Weasley, um, Weasleyanism, um, we reflect that it went back into synergianism. And when we go into this, we understand that when we look at salvation for 
evangelical Armenianism. Those whom um, of their own free will choose to place their faith in the gospel will, and those who do not fall away. To be saved, ultimately, salvation is losable. Assurance is not possible. Um, the elect are chosen according to foreseen faith, elected to a losable state of faith. The reprobate, uh, reprobate are those who do not maintain their faith. In bondage initially, but universally freed by um, prevenant grace to be able to respond to the gospel according to our freed will. Now we can all either resist or cooperate with God's grace. Um, God's prevenant grace restores free will that enables people to choose to believe. Christians must choose to remain in their faith, else they will lose their salvation. And then lastly, when we go into the justification, an ongoing declaration that is a that while a person has faith, their past sins are forgiven. Losing faith equals justification stopping. And then for rationalistic Armenianism, which was basically Finneyism, uh, it's the same as uh, for salvation. It's um, synergism. It's the same for salvation as uh, evangelical Armenianism. Um, assurance is not possible. Um, the elect are chosen part is um, same as Armenianism. But where it comes down is the human bondage to sin, which is innately free. Everyone is free to choose to believe or reject the gospel. That's it. They don't go any more into that. And then where does the human contribution come in? Well, people have the ability and freedom to believe or not and may choose to maintain their faith or not. And then their last point for justification is the same point as what I stated before. All of these reflect specific aspects of doctrines that were, came outside of the Bible, but were inspired by the Bible and by doctrines made by other people as well. Um... A lot of people today in the Protestant faith look at C.S. Lewis, um, that look at John Calvin, uh, Martin Luther, uh, Spurgeon, and um, you know people in different pastors like um, John MacArthur, Charles Stanley, Franklin Graham all these different people who teach different things and people like John MacArthur which is a Calvinist will explain Calvinism over anything because he interprets that doctrine to be true he believes in it now do I think that Calvinism is inherently bad no I, I don't fully disagree with everything but Armenianism, a lot of people seem to be pushing away from that. And this is uh, where I, I have to, you know, bring this in. So let's go into Judaism. Back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to where all the roots started, right? 
So free will in Judaism is a capacity to choose the difference between courses of actions, words, and thoughts. Um, not due to outside influence, internal nature, or any sort of personal preference. Just balanced choice between right and wrong. So, essentially, a human being can exercise their own free will by making moral decisions in, in Judaism. So, free will. Um, let's look at it in uh, according to the way that the Hebrews uh, uh, announced it for God's interaction with man. So, we understand that God rewards those who listen to his will and help perfect his world. He chastises those who disobey and destroy it. The choice to be one or the other is clearly in our hands. Behold, God says, I have placed you before good and evil, life and death. Choose life. Choose life. That's a choice. So, if we don't have free will, we can't make choices. So that is a, essentially a point that disproves Calvinism at its entirety. That point where God stated that is in Deuteronomy. So, without a belief in free will, none of this makes sense. This is why Calvinism isn't perfect. It is an interpretation. It is not scripture. It is rooted in scripture, but it's an interpretation of the scripture that you are reading. There is no instructions, no reward, no chastisement, basically. So Judaism is to replete with a belief that there is no such thing as failure, no room for despair. As low as a person can fall, basically his appetite, his addictions can take control of him. And they always turn around and clean up the mess. But God shows patience to those who sin because he believes in the human being and his comp uh, capacity to change. He is a compassionate God and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, and faith, his faithfulness extending kindness to the uh, thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But the change is not possible unless we have the autonomy of free will. The ability to turn ourselves around and, you know, go from forward. Without free will, there is no purpose to life. Um, and we would be living meaningless uh, lives. Um, basically, our willful, proactive decisions just wouldn't make sense, you know. So let's look at free will in the Bible. Let's actually look through the Old Testament and kind of see what's been going on with free will. So in the entire um, Jewish literature and everything, free choice is the domain of God. He chooses that heaven and earth should exist. He chooses um, their design and the story. So hum humans are created in God's likeness. This means that, like God, we are endowed with the capac uh, capacity to do as we please. 
So if God can do what he wants, humans can do what he wants. You know? Despite what our creator would like us to do, indeed Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. When we read, God says, Verily, this human being is unique, and he has his own mind to choose between good and evil. So, when we understand... Um, when uh, God explains these kind of things, we have to understand where all these things come from. Unlike God, though, we are limited by the nature of the world and the world he has created. We cannot choose to grow wings and fly, and we cannot change winter into summer. Neither can we foil or interrupt a moment, God's plan for his creation, or even our personal destiny. Uh, Joseph said to his brothers, You intend me to do harm. God intended it for good, so as to bring about the present of... Uh, present result, the survival of many people. When we reflect all these different circumstances in the Bible and all this, we choose that whether to obey is the will of our Creator or ignore it. We can even go beyond it by doing so. We can choose our role within the story. Whether good things happen because of us or despite us, we can decide how deep and profound the story gets. Um, when we try to understand different points, um, we have to understand that God makes plans, and he can unfold innumerable ways. But to endow that we are elected and predestined to go to heaven while he still creates and makes the other ones that he doesn't want to go to heaven and just throws them into the world to live whatever way they want shows some sort of diabolical way. Now, we can't choose to understand God's will because God is beyond us. But we also have to understand that if we strip ourselves of free will and choice and say that we are predetermined and elected before the foundation of the world was created, that's inherently what Calvinists believe, then we are essentially damning ourselves because we are looking at it in a prideful manner that we can do whatever we want. But then people say, well, no, no, because Calvinism says that we are going to be abide in the spirit. But... I've seen more Calvinists argue with other people of different faiths or different doctrinal beliefs. It's one thing to be zealous, and it's another thing to be passionate, but it's another thing to just be insulting. And while you're interpreting a doctrine of the Bible, don't be like Satan, because that's another form of free will. Satan chose to rebel against God, and he fell. And not just him, but a third of the angels. When we understand all of this stuff, we reflect in Revelation, and we reflect in Jude, and we reflect in Genesis 6.
we understand purely and we through all conception of the Bible that even the angels as many, as much as people want to say that angels don't have free will they are still rebelling against God demons are essentially what we would refer to as spiritual beings spiritual beings are inherently angels as well they're spiritual beings let the one who knows the hidden things of the heart God can see what's in our heart so then we have to understand that there's a difference in theology they have to understand that there's a difference between free will and God's will so these are the questions that not just Jewish people have struggled with but Christians alike Christians will adapt to a theology that makes sense to them because it makes sense to them they can't understand God's will so they go into an interpretation or a theology based on that but a theology doesn't define the actual ordinances of God because we can't fully understand God this, we're studying God in theology we're not understanding God in theology and as a person who have studied multiple different world religions you still will never understand the will of God because God has such a unique sense to him and he is so divine and so powerful and so perfect that imperfect people will never understand him but if God was just any deity no big deal Genesis describes the God who brings the entire universe into existence out of the void things exist and events happen only because he wills it and the ascent and the essence of each thing is nothing other than his will so how could a creation of God's will have the capacity to do something other than God's will and this is what many people and rabbis and pastors and Bible coalitions all argued a 12th century person um, who was a codifier of Jewish law um, I, I believe his name was uh, my my if I remember correctly something like that asked a rhetorical question writing could there could there um, occur something in the world other than willed by its maker then he simply pulls the carpet from his own question fire burns because God wills it to burn water flows because God wills it to flow so too human beings have free will because God wills us to have free will there's no contradiction in God having letting us have free will and us not having free will so now we're going to go through free will versus uh, um, uh, uh, omniscience when we look at it God and his knowledge are closely related because his will and knowledge 
um, can reflect on his decisions. So, just as nothing can exist without God's willing it to exist, nothing can also occur without God knowing it will occur. If so, God knows what we will do with our free will. God knew that Adam and Eve would eat the wrong tree in the garden, and that the children of Israel would make a golden calf. He knew that humanity would generally mess up his, wor his world more than nasty bugs in a vegetable patch. Correct? That's already in his knowledge, so how could he... Um, So how could be held accountable for doing that, which has already been planned in advance? This is where the conundrum um, of, uh, of a, a jo uh, Jewish sage in the Roman times, known as uh, Akiva, stated, All is foreseen, but permission is given. Um, every Jewish theologian has grappled the issue of the divine foreknowledge and free will. Some explain it simply, knowing something is going to happen does not cause it to happen. Or, sure, we, can do, we can't do otherwise, but that doesn't mean we are forced by that knowledge. It's not difficult to understand that there are cases where we too can predict the future with a high degree of accuracy. For example, there's been many cases where the United States government will send people, you know, in to gather intelligence. The same way that um, they did in uh, the Torah when they were spying on the Canaanites to gather information, spies, right? We similarly see these as uh, is completely opposite, but they're paralleled into today's society, as we see spying always occurs. This spying will give us knowledge of what's to happen, but faith in God is what will give us inspiration and give us the knowledge we need. So, let's say that you are holding um, a glass right? What will happen if you drop the glass? It will fall to the ground and break is your answer. So you let go of the glass and you know what happens? It falls to the ground and shatters, right? But there's also the case where you can drop the glass and it doesn't shatter. You know, not every circumstance is the same and not everything that you believe will happen will happen but that's not saying that God's knowledge and his omniscience will and won't happen. God knows everything. So he does know who will and will not abide by his commandments, who will abide by his um, laws and everything. If you were to drop the glass, could I sue you for the, the worth of the, the glass? I'm sure you, you'll agree that in my case would shatter in court even faster than the glass would shatter on the ground. But because God is beyond time, for him, everything's already occurred. He's already foreseen it. His knowledge of the future is similar to our knowledge of the present.
that knowledge cannot be um, a cause to our deeds though but an outcome God too cannot be held responsible for our misdeeds simply because he knew about them beforehand it's kind of like if you go to when you're going to school like high school you have the choice to go to school or not go now your parents already know that you you hate going to high school right so you're you're like all right a bunch of my friends are going to the movies and to the beach today and they're skipping school do i skip school or do i go now your friends are texting you and they're saying all right well we you know jimmy just picked us up um we're gonna head over to your place then you tell them well i'm gonna be heading over to where my bus stop is um i'll go hide in the bushes and wait for you guys to pick me up there we take that bit of accuracy um in a, a relevant day or a present day event right where jimmy comes over you jump in the car but then what happens there's a phone call that happens to your parents saying, um, yeah, we just want you to know that uh, we haven't seen your kid in class today. And next thing you know, your parents are calling your cell phone. You uh, hit the cancel button and text them, I'm in class, I'm sorry. Um, I'll call you on my lunch, something like that. They text you back, they're saying, we just got a call that you skipped. And then you just say, um, I apparently missed the bus uh, I ended up walking or something like that and you're lying to your parents next thing you know that thing just ravels up to be a huge huge thing right so when you end up coming home after your wonderful day out with your friends you're getting in trouble right your parents already knew you skipped not just because of the phone call, but because they probably already knew you were going to skip eventually because, you know, you don't like school. So, if you predicted the glass would shatter on a past experience, but life in general, and humans in particular, are unpredictable and imperfect, God knows that we will choose not based on the president. He is beyond time. For him, everything has already happened, so how can we compare our knowledge to his? He knows for an exact truth that it happened. People learn from circumstances. Things occur to them so they can understand it. Versus God already knew everything that would occur in this world. It's based on his own omniscience. And where do we see omniscience is based on his re uh, revelation to his prophets. The prophets would go and they would get revelations through dreams and visions um, of what would occur and what is to expected to happen. We see this in the captivity of Babylon, which was prophesied by Isaiah, uh, King Cyrus. Before King Cyrus's time in Isaiah, we see things that have occurred in the Assyrians. We've seen um, various accounts of wars that were to transpire if they didn't correct themselves. 
Um, we also read about numerous points from various prophets of God opening up his arms to the Gentiles. And we've also seen beyond the Gentiles is the um, basically the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. So God already knew and planned everything to happen. But does that mean that he's already elected specific people? So while we look in the question of reality of God's will, um, it's basically uh, those who are inconsistent uh, or who insist we are better off leaving the mystery simply to faith since intellectual prodding is more confusing. And this is where uh, our free will and limits of human understanding. Certainly most approach that... Um, most people refuse to leave it a matter of faith, but it does not assert that um, it cannot be understood by us. You know, rather, um, the human mind is incapable of resolving this problem with clarity because we cannot reach the level of God's intelligence. We also think in dualities. Most people will think about something and then reflect what they think on another interpretation that comes to their mind. Basically, they'll have two different things. And there's a lot of people who will read the Bible, a lot of Calvinists I've met too, that will read the Bible and then be like, oh, I don't get it. They'll read the Bible again and they'll be like, okay, so it's this. And in that same passage, something else comes in. And then in that same passage, something else comes in. Next thing you know, you have um, a, a chain of different interpretations of this verse. And those interpretations become unique and very personal to you because it was revealed to you. So when you get these revelations of what you see, does that mean that those are... Um, what the Bible is actually speaking. When you say, I think, even before um, the therefore, you've created a duality. There is you, then there's your act of thinking. All of your thoughts and the things you have seen are constructed from past experience. Over time, your knowledge continues to grow, and you change and grow from this knowledge. When we say that he, that, um, when we say God is one, we don't just mean that there's only one of him. We mean that he is a perfect unity. He is the knower. He is the knowing. He is the knowledgeable. God knows that, um, all that is, was, and will be through knowing himself. There is no change, no duality. He is not affected in any way by the events of time. When God thinks, there is only God. There is only God. So there's only God that exists. My thoughts are not your thoughts, God would explain. 
in Isaiah. Our thoughts remain just ideas until we do something to make them real. God's thoughts, on the other hand, bring life into existence. The two are related because God's thoughts are one with him, therefore give existence to life. So, if God's existence and can know all, can we imagine what it's like to be perfect with, you know, his oneness? No, we cannot understand it because we do not operate in the same function as him. We will never be that, that point. But the one thing to say is that We will never see things to grasp the paradox of free will um, because the way we interpret things <coughs> will explain <coughs> different aspects of what's to happen. And when we interpret these aspects and these um, belief systems, these will essentially um, form what what we would call basically an interpretation of divine uh, reality or the or interpretation of God and when we look at the theology and interpretations of God we understand that God's um, omniscience God's belief system uh, God's ordinance in this world is profound but this is where we start reflecting scripture now a lot of the scriptures that I can say uh, you know give you guys a little bit of footnotes to go into you can look at Deuteronomy 30 17 through 18 Exodus 33 6 through 7 Ezekiel 33 11 um, Genesis 1 26 uh, Genesis 3 Genesis 50 verse 20 um, Psalms 44:22, and uh, you know there's various other verses that we can reflect um, so when we understand this we understand that the misfit and the covenant and everything uh, most Jewish people believe that when God created them he gave them free will and the idea of people being able to make their own decisions and distinguish right from wrong therefore be Jews believe that it's an individual uh, individuals responsibility to follow the mitzvahs so basically they need to follow the law um, and that's where Judaism started now we're going back into Christianity now so to understand there is various different points we need to one walk with God and we need to understand and love God even though his will will never be able will never be able to interpret or understand his will
So, when a lot of people will ask me, am I a Calvinist or Armenian, uh, or do I follow Armenianism or do I follow Lutherianism? Um, the answer is no. I, um, I don't follow Reformed doctrine. Reformed theology, I do, but Reformed theology isn't just based on um, people that have interpret, uh, interpreted what the Bible says. It's based on um, what I'm reading from the Bible. So, why do I believe in free will? And free will is a basis construct of certain aspects of what makes everything in the Bible very interesting because let's let's go from the very beginning and we'll actually go um, to uh, a very interesting man uh, a very interesting uh, thing is that um, Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, A man's heart divideth um, his way, but uh, the Lord's um, direct his steps. So, basically saying, a man is imperfect, but the Lord can help him. You know? Um, in, in the lack of a better term. So, I very I find it very simple, you know, to, to understand the difference between Calvinism and um, everything. If you read if you read the apologetics and everything, we, we go into uh, a lot of different circumstances. So apologetics again is also a, a base interpretation and study of the Bible in the defense of the Bible. So, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, God, except for those who um, is from God, Jesus, has seen the Father. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Um, when we look at Calvinism, he refutes the fact that everyone who believes, God's sovereignty is definite which we do understand that is a, a definite certainty he rules overall but what people don't understand is God's sovereignty is defined without if God's sovereignty is defined without free will then Adam and Eve would have never sinned Cain wouldn't have killed Abel there wouldn't be a need for Moses to deliver the Hebrews there wouldn't be a purpose for all who believe wouldn't be defined as believe it would be defined as those who God elected to believe. Jesus drew people in for the gospel to be told the good news and the purpose of salvation. In which is in direct contradiction to what Calvinists believe. Now, I'm not attacking Calvinism. I'm attacking Reformed theology at this point. You know, our Armenianism does have many flaws too, but... 
this is basically to the point where I've seen multiple accounts of Calvinists attack brutally people that just have a different theology than them. So, here's a good one. Um, sovereignty is a great example in the book of Job. Because in the book of Job, Satan had to ask God for permission to do what he did, right? So, if Satan had to go to God for permission, then that's saying that God was sovereign over Satan. God still rules. But, Job had the free will to curse and deny God, but he didn't. Now, many people would say that's because he was in the spirit. But, this is where we go into the uh, the the duality of it, like we were stating before, um, he still questioned God at the end, right? God knew that Satan would lose the bet. His omniscience is definitely there, which is very well the cause. However, between God and Satan within the book of Job, Job still had the free will and questioned his friends, questioned God, and having free will otherwise people wouldn't wouldn't be questioning things so much and looking at preachers of calvin's doctrine as salvation the fruits of the spirit looks as if paul is referencing the ones he's talking to as the first ones would be the offspring of salvation to deliver from that moment forward the gospel of salvation through christ in this hope we are saved so it's not I am destined to be saved. It's the hope we were saved. In essence, we look at it uh, in belief that hope isn't seen is um, hope that is seen isn't hope. It is desire, and desire leads us to sin. Um, when we see Calvin's doctrine. We see the Bible, so we believe that it's the hope we are saved. But the difference is, is the hope that we don't see. We wait for the patience. In terms, we believe what the Bible says is true. Jesus rose from the dead and intercedes for us to his Father in hopes that we would be saved from damnation. It's further noted in um, 26 about how the Spirit intercedes for us and helps us intercede to the will of God. If we're elected and predestined, why would the Spirit have to intercede for us according to the will of God? Basically, if it's interceding for us, it's basically overriding us. But if it's interceding us for the will of God, then it's basically saying that we are still fallible. We're still imperfect. We're still screwing up. But if we're elected, then we shouldn't be screwing up. We should be perfect in every way. Um, for those he foreknew predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. Um, so I want you to think, is this predestination in the term of Calvinism, or are they talking about predestination for the people before Christ? The predestination of Christ, which means the destination that Christ took when he showed up, that means everyone who was predestined before him 
predestination such as Abraham, King David, whom Jesus who never met Jesus, but are predestined for it. But those whom say predestination is he also called, and those whom he called are also justified by those whom he justified, he is also glorified. The way I look at it is the way we, when we reflect predestination today in Calvinism is that we're saying we're predestined to go to heaven. We're predestined to go this way. But if we're predestined for heaven, then what, and we don't have free will, then why do we even, why do we even just not sin and just disobey God and do everything if we're already predestined. If you're so certain that you are the elect and that you're going to heaven, then you can pretty much do whatever you want. But then you're going to say no, because that goes against God's will. And if that goes against God's will, then that means that you can't do it, even though you have the decision to do it or not. But that enacts free will. So, when we looked at an action of free will, and we looked at predestination, we have to understand that we do have to address God's sovereignty. God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So God sacrificed his own son for our sins to be atoned for the interceding of his son. So we reflect and understand if his sovereignty is predestined, uh, predestined for electing who is saved, then Jesus' sacrifice was in vain because his sacrifice wouldn't have been needed because the Father could just wipe, away, wipe our slate clean at any point. Essentially what I'm trying to get at is if we were already predestined and elected, then why was Jesus even a thing? Why did the Messiah have to be sacrificed on the cross, die, and be resurrected, and then have that essential part of Christianity lead us to believe in him? Because there's many who will believe and many who won't. And there's many I've met that have come to Christ and believed in it and then moved away. For example, there's been a person I met and um, I don't like to throw names out, but um, his name is Tony, and he does go on TikTok a lot now and do anti-religious speeches. He does not believe in God, and he is now currently an atheist. Calvinism will say he was never truly saved. Now, I would agree with Calvinists on that. He was never truly saved because he wasn't a full Christian. By that, I mean he started off in Italy. That's where he comes from. When we understand that he came from Italy, it's safe to assume that he was Catholic, which he was. That was the first thing I brought up to him. He said so. Um, you're from Italy. Now, he used to mock me all the time. Now, I don't really talk to him anymore. But he used to make fun of me all the time for being a Christian, right? So, with him mocking me and everything like that, I got to the point where I just didn't want to associate with him anymore. 
but I did bring it up to him that he thought it was funny that I um, I was a Christian and he used to make fun of me for it. So then there was a point where I said, okay, well, let's, let's, ref let's reflect on you then. If you think it's funny that I am a Christian and I believe in a God and everything, then let's reflect you. You're an atheist because you believed in God. Not once, but twice. And he's like, yeah. And it's because I believed at one point that I realized that there isn't one. And I'm like, alright, so let's back up here. You believed in a God. You were raised Catholic. I can understand you wanting to go away from the church. Um, I was also raised Catholic. Um, I didn't go through all the sacraments and everything that everybody else did, but um, that's because I kind of got to a point where I, you know, knew that it wasn't going to be for me. So you were a Catholic, and then you left the Catholic faith when you came to America, and instead of actually going to any other Reformed church, you become a Mormon. And when you become a Mormon, you move through the faith in, in Mormonism, and as you go through there, you start learning and you start going up in higher ranks in their church, and as you're going through that, you, you're telling me about these secret handshakes that they have, and there's, as the further you get in Mormonism, there's, it opens up different doors that you're going to go into that, you know... And he's like, yep. You know, and he goes, and that's uh, essentially why I don't believe anymore. So I said, I can understand why you don't believe in a God. Because you went to two of the worst places you possibly could go. But then I said, but that is not the basis of my God. My God is different, you know. And he's like, that's what all Christians say. I'm like, Catholics believe in things that were based off an Akkadian empire and reformed theology based on different various interpretations that followed suit under different theologians. The different theologians which basically um, put different doctrines into place became catechisms. The catechisms of the Catholic Church ended up being ordained through the Council of Nicaea, which also uh, contained parts of Gnosticism. St. Augustine was very heavily influenced by certain philosophers, such as, um, I believe it was Plato and Aristotle, for example. Um, I, I think I could be wrong with Aristotle, but, um, but Plato, I think, was definitely a big one he was into, and, um, I believe Aristotle was the other one, but, based on certain philosoph uh, philosophical beliefs and stuff that certain um, people during the Council of Nicaea adopted certain traits. There was many people that were in the old Catholic Church versus the when it was started going forward. As different people came into place, different theologies started being reformed. And this is why Gnosticism is part of the theology of the Catholic Church, which is, again, against biblical scriptures. Thus saying, okay, you were misled when you were a Catholic. 
But then you're going to a Mormon, and you're believing the Book of Mormon with Joseph Smith. And although I don't know uh, everything about Mormonism and every, every concept of it, we have to understand that the Bible itself says you cannot add or remove from this book. So instead of adding and removing, they just create a whole new book. And essentially, Mormons are essentially Muslims 2.0. They're just like the ones that don't cut off your head, you know? Um, and when we look at the uh, Muslims, and, uh, and anybody who listens that is a Muslim or a former Muslim, I'm not mocking your faith or anything. I just know that you have radicals in your faith. Um, but I am uh, pointing out that when you look at Mormonism, there's contradictions to the Bible itself. And when you look at um, Muslims, they have contradictions to the Gospel as well. But the Muslims take the contradictions and they, uh, they basically look at the, uh, the contradictions that they have and they say, that's because your text is corrupted. And our text is divine. Then we look at the uh, the Mormons, and they're saying, well, no church got it correct, so this is the Book of Mormon that's going to have everything correct. And you're going to find it because I, uh, God planted it there, basically, and, you know, that's the, that's the real book. Two religions that base their scriptures on two different, um, two different aspects of uh, a new book. You know, the Mormonism is the Third Testament, which is what they say, and uh, the um, Quran is the pure word of God, is what they say. So when we look at that, I say, now if you were to go to a church that I go to, or something like that, you'd be seeing a very big difference in a lot of things. Now, you being an atheist probably don't want to go, and you probably will never go to another church again because, you know, you feel misled. You feel like all of this is not real. But then you make accusations because you believe in science over religion, and we're archaic in our beliefs. And then he continues to go forward and start mocking certain things I said, um, are certain things I believe, and I say, all right, all right, you can mock what I say, but you do realize that everything that you have stated has already been justified through scripture. You say that, um, the universe is expanding, right? And you know that through, um, various belief systems that, uh, you gathered through science um, as we reflect philosophers um, Einstein uh, you know as a scientist um, uh, Hubble um, you know we, we learned that the um, the expansion of the universe, or the increase, um, the increasing of the universe, is not just based singularly, but it's always expanding. And as it's continuing to expand, based on Hubble's telescope that disproved Einstein, 
your theory of everybody who followed Einstein was disproven and then Einstein had to get on board because he had the actual evidence there in front of him. You see, therefore you believe. Okay. But when we go back in time and we go to um, other, you know, philosophers, uh, you know, they, they would believe that the universe was static and the universe was not moving. And in that verse uh, of, um, they're saying that the universe was static, and then we go forward, the Bible literally states in Isaiah that the universe is being stretched. When we go forward in the Quran, it says that the universe is expanding, essentially. Um, so when we understand that the, the ancient texts have already disproved what Einstein said and has already verified what Hubble found out, then when we look at all these things, we realize that the Bible has already explained it, has already made it real. And then you're going to just try, then they're going to try to argue saying, well, you don't know what the heavens are. So I'm like, all right, well, the Bible makes it clear what the heavens are. And if you don't want to just go by scripture, then we can go even further into religions to where Abraham came from. Because Abraham came from Ur, which is in Iraq, which Iraq was part of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, part of the Sumerians. The Sumerians believed, ta-da, that the other planets in the world were round. That there was more planets than we could see with our own eyes. That the there was multiple gods in polytheistic ways and Abraham was part of there working in a temple in Ur that was worshipping Enlil and Abraham got called by God to go to Canaan away from the polytheistic ways and from that point started developing the seed that would create Israel and from that seed ended up creating the whole entire basis of Judaism and Christianity and everything that we have today. So, just based on his own philosophies and everything, I could go into world religions instead of just Christianity or the Bible and actually even explain to him this is where it all comes from, you know? Your science is only evident because you believe in it versus... I don't need to see it, and I don't need to, you know, have it to believe in it, because I know that the Bible is already going to state something that's going to happen or going to be true, because God has sovereignty over it. And this, again, leads into the doctrines of sovereignty and the Calvinism and everything for Reformed theology. When we go back more into this, we say... He chose us before him the foundation of the world. Literally, a Calvinist will go to the belief of their election. He chose humanity over anything else. But was Jonah chosen to go to, uh, get the Assyrians to repent? And if he was predestined to heaven, why is repentance even a thing? You know? Why is Jonah going to his enemies to deliver a message a thing if the if some of his enemies are already predestined to go to heaven. 
See, this is where contradictions come in, and it's not based on us having to understand because God's understanding is beyond our own. It has to be based on an interpretation because we're interpreting something someone else wrote outside of the Bible that basically is trying to define Scripture in the simplistic way for us to believe. But that's not how it works. The Old Testament defines the New Testament. Scripture interprets Scripture. If you are looking anything outside of the Bible, then you're not looking in the Bible. If you're listening to somebody that reads things outside the Bible, then you're not looking in Scripture. You're defining Scripture by what that, that person is preaching is saying. And God never changed who he is. So this meaning, uh, this means the foundation of the world. He basically chose humanity before. Uh, and we, but it says, we should all be holy and blameless before him. So how many people that are Calvinists, um, Lutherian, uh, people that follow Lutherianism, people that follow uh, Armenianism, people that follow Calvinism, people that follow... Um, Catholicism. How many of anybody <coughs> are bl are blameless? If you're saying you sin, but you're abiding by the Spirit because it's based on God's will, and that will is going to reform you to be completely saved by you being elect, then you should have no reason to be to have blame on you to have any shame you should be completely holy and completely blameless because you are abiding by the spirit but we're not the apostles and we're not the prophets and even the prophets made mistakes there are certain things that Moses didn't want to do all the way back in the Old Testament there are certain things he didn't want to do So, he predestined us for adoption to himself because of his grace, and it is ordained um, an inheritance, having be predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to his counsel and his will, his Son, to unite things in him, in heaven and earth. Interesting that Jesus was meant to unite and not divide by theology that's outside of biblical scriptures, don't you think? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So, when we believe the gospel, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So, when, if we renounce it, do we lose salvation? Let's see, um... Let's see a, a take on this to say those who renounced Christ were never saved. But if they were decided to, but are you, is anybody decided to say who's saved and who's not? No. There's not one person that I have seen that can say another person is or isn't a Christian. Just because somebody is an early Christian or a new Christian, they're trying to abide and learn. We can't dismiss a person because they're learning so only God has the right that can do that now we can judge righteously and give them judgment based on that but we can't condemn anyone 
and we can't say that they are or are not Christian because they have to follow Christ and live your way. It's and follow your theology. It doesn't matter what theology you follow. Armenianism, Calvinism, Angelicanism, um, you know, Mormonism, Catholicism, being a Muslim, I, I really, it, none of these even matter. It should be Christianity. You, you shouldn't say you're a Calvinist. You should be saying you're a Bible-believing Christian. Um, John 3.16 makes uh, a perfectly clear indication of this. And... So, as we go through this, um, the, the, the basic point of that I'm, what I'm trying to get to is as we're looking through Job, and as we're looking at Moses, and as we're looking at all these people in the Old Testament, and we're looking at the, um, the gospel itself, saying that Jesus died for all, not for the elect. They do mention the elect in the Bible. And to understand that, we have to understand what the elect are. To understand what the elect are, we have to go to uh, the con basically the consensus of what the Bible is interpreting, or what we are interpreting from the Bible, because God's word, again, is spoken in parables. Jesus even said his word would be spoken in parables. So we're understanding his word in a parable to understand where it's going you know, and how to define it. So, Matthew 7, uh, 13, verse 14 states, Enter by the narrow gate, which is, uh, narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad that is, th that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are very few who find it. So when we look at this passage in Matthew, we're literally saying, okay, there's a narrow gate and a wide gate. Which one are we going to go into? Well, the wide gate we can get in quicker, and the narrow gate will take longer, but the narrow gate is the one that's going to be better for us. A lot of people, when they look at material objects and stuff, they'll say, do I want the... the Cadillac Escalade that has the back massager and everything on it, or do I just want to get like a normal Honda, you know, that can take me to point A to point B? Do I want to spend $65,000, or do I want to just throw two grand at a private sale and fix up the car a little bit? You know? So at the end of the day, you're paying sixty-five grand for a brand new car that is eventually gonna start breaking down over time and the parts are gonna be more expensive versus buying a Honda where the parts will be a bit cheaper and won't break down uh, won't break down as much but you've been getting at a private sale and you don't know how much how you know well you can trust it so we're, we're basically looking at two different concepts here but is it the luxury life that you want or is it the, you know, humble life that you want? Now, me, I have never paid more than uh, $250 for a car. Because I always went with the deals of the cheaper cars. Now, 
because I went for the deals of the cheaper cars, what does that entail? It means that the entailment of me going for cheaper cars leads me to have a better um, understanding where I don't need to pay for a car loan with interest on top of it, where I don't need to continuously have all the stuff to have a status. I can have a very simple car that I'm happy with, right? So then we're going to parallel this to the narrow gate. The narrow gate, we can live a very humble life and still go down the narrow gate. Or we can live a very luxurious life and we can go into the wide gate because we want to just have everything at that moment. Or we can still have a bit of luxury in our life and then go through the narrow gate. None of us will ever be perfect and will never ever be able to conform to the way Christ walked fully because Christ walked perfectly and there's no way we can ever match up to him. But if we're going to enter the narrow gate and that's what Christ is telling us to do, that means we have the choice to choose to go to the narrow gate or the wide gate. Um... So according to that passage, where many are going to choose the path to destruction, but only few will choose the path to life, which is implied in these verses. Um, we have the ability and capacity to choose. Those are not in view um, to have other passages and stuff like that. Um, for example, the, um, there are passages that reach an age or mental capacity to choose. Unborn babies, infants, children and as we continue going through there but there's at least a possibility that more children have died in a saved condition than adults who have died lost um the way that we reflect this is basically on different kind of statistics we're, we're already estimating that there's an uh about 42 million abortions each year now you're going to tell me a person that coincides with god and everything is going to have an abortion so there's many people that say claim to be Christian and will have abortions. And then people will say, well, you're dead to your sin. But then how do you know that they're not elect? Because they don't form with your theology and they don't form with that. By this, I'm not saying I approve abortions. I do believe those are completely sinful and completely wrong. What I'm saying is, is that if they're abiding in Christ and they are supposed to be part of the Holy Spirit, then is abortion a choice or not? Because if they're saying that they are Christian and everything, and they are getting an abortion, obviously they're not Christian, because they, they don't actually go with the, what the Bible's saying. However, if you're saying that on the other side that they're not Christian even though they try to follow God the best they can and you are perfect because you never had an abortion then what other sins have you done that's in equality to or not equal to an abortion but what other sins have you done that they can judge you on that make you not as good
the Bible is also clear on the accountability to choose um, their own final destination, which we uh, addressed in the Old Testament and uh, through uh, the rabbis and um, Jewish teachings. Um, I call heaven and earth witnesses today against you. I have, uh, this is um, the ability to determine their own designation. Moses wrote, I call heaven and earth witnesses today against you, and I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Therefore, choose life. Deuteronomy. Jesus' uh, statement in Matthew 7.14 about the narrow paths included the idea that his listeners had the ability to enter whichever path they choose. Joshua underscored this idea when he declared to the Israelites, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Joshua 24:15. The skeptical community likes to parade before the masses to picture a tyrant God who will basically cast people to eternal destruction based on nothing more than a whim and it's not true any person who goes to hell um has consciously made the decision to be there um even an atheist uh dan barker clearly stated speaking for myself if the biblical heaven and hell exist i would choose hell now dan barker being an atheist doesn't have a inherently good ability to understand the Bible concepts. But C.S. Lewis insightfully noted that there are two kinds of people in the, uh, in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. So, C.S. Lewis noted that. And Timothy Keller, all God does in the end with people is give them what they want, uh, what they most want, including freedom from himself. What could be more fair than that? God allows people to choose their destiny. He wants all men to choose to be saved. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to his knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 uh, says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but all the, uh, should come to repentance. Not only does he not want people to choose hell, um, he sent his son as a sacrifice to swim to dissu uh, dissuade people from choosing hell and persuade them to choose heaven. In fact, the book of Hebrews explains those who choose the path to destruction will trample the Son of God under their feet on their way. In Hebrews 10, uh, 29, the concept of hell does not mitigate against God's love or justice. Literally, apologetics dismisses the aspect of Calvinism's aspect of predestination and election. God allows the accountable hum humans to choose their final destination. Sovereignty doesn't mean that we have free will. It means he reigns over all things. A king is sovereign over a nation doesn't mean his subjects will not rebel. 
and it's pretty simple. Jesus died for all who will believe in him, and the heart of the gospel is forgiveness based on Christ's sacrifice and atonement for our sins to become the Lord of heaven. You can reference this in Isaiah, verse Daniel, verse the gospel, and versus Paul's letters. Those four, um, those four book, uh, books in the Bible literally outline the concept of everything that is to come. On top of Zechariah, Malachi, and um, uh, and Jonah, it's our free will to go to Christ, but not all will. Many will reject him, just like the Jews rejected Jesus. Isaiah knew this would happen based on God's prophecy. Jesus stated, I came for the lost sheep of Israel because Jesus knew his sacrifice would be the atonement of the world, but his message was based for Israel, and his message would spread throughout the world in which the apostles would deliver. If Abraham got called from Ur, which is modern-day Iraq, to the Mediterranean Sea, the central trade port of all civilizations, a place where people and cultures would constantly be influenced by others, God's sovereign over all things, so if we don't have free will, then why would he put Abraham where a message would be spread so easily? And to say that, and what if it was just to the point where Abraham just said, well, I really don't like the sea, I'm actually really happy here. You know, there's always a concept of choice. Cain chose to kill Abel because he was jealous. But God never said that he was going to hide his face from him. God said that he just basically wanted him to own up for what he did. Um, so, the Jews, in, in my perspective the best way i can explain this the jews the israelites are god's elect he's the one who elected them from the beginning but many have stated that they lost his covenant now to say that is um within scripture to disillude them saying oh yeah the jews are not important anymore but this is where it's different in revelation they state the 144,000. The 144,000 is literally the 12 tribes of Israel times 12,000 of each member of the tribe. So from that, those people are the elect. Those are the elect people that Jesus was talking about and the elect people that Paul was explaining, the elect. There's people elected from that, and those are the, the people in Revelation that are going to be elected for that because of what they have done and because they're like literally like the one percent of israel that does believe jesus is the messiah we are his body the church the body of christ his sacrifice stretched to us by his grace these are the people who say you do not need to def divide the scripture uh you need to def divide the scriptures so when you're saying that you need to righteously divide the scriptures, saying one side is for the Jews and one side's for the Gentiles, you have to say you have to you can't use the verses that are for the Jews if that's your belief system. If you're saying that 
Jesus did this for us, and Paul did this for us, and the Gentiles are from here, and, and Jesus is from here, but we're all saved by Jesus, then what you have to understand is that the, you're supporting a belief that you can't divide the scriptures based on your own doctrine. So you can't use certain verses to define your own theological perspective if you're saying that it doesn't apply to your specific notion. So, here's another thing that uh, was brought up was in Acts 9, they reference Paul, you know, and they're saying, you know, if we look at it, they're like, Paul never said that God, um, that uh, Paul didn't have, uh, Paul said, I chose to do all of this on my free will. Things that Paul never said. Okay. So let's look at this. Jesus asked Paul in Acts 9, why are you persecuting me? So if Paul didn't have free will and he was persecuting Jesus, it was by his own free will that he was persecuting him. Otherwise, you're saying that God actually wanted Paul to kill Stephen and go after Jesus and try to kill him. But if God is persecuting Jesus and then Jesus appears to him, you know, they're like, yeah, I, I, I totally blinded myself so I could go to God. You know, Paul never did that, you know, because it was all something that was under God's sovereignty. But Paul still had the choice. But when Paul noticed that Jesus is Lord, that is when he changed. Because he realized what he was doing was wrong. So he chose to change and go to another direction. Paul never had free will. He was chosen. Well, yes, he can be chosen, but you're, that's to say the chosen don't have free will. Now, let's reflect. Paul didn't have free will to get Stephen killed. Paul didn't have free will to choose to go where he had to. Paul didn't have free will to support the Gentiles. Paul didn't have free will so he wasn't the worst of the apostles and definitely should be, uh, should be called one. Even though he literally said, I am the worst of the apostles. So, if Paul didn't have free will, he can't be the worst. But he literally said he is the worst. So why can he say he is the worst if he didn't have the free will to do any of that? It doesn't make sense. You can't say, I didn't have free will, so I'm the worst. Because I got people killed. Because if God's sovereign and he's doing all of this, then you then God's free will enacted Paul to do all this stuff. And that's not the case. Paul literally is owning up. I am the worst of the apostles. I did this. So things that Paul did say is he did do that. He had people killed. In Acts 9, it actually states that uh, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, and he found that they were on the way 
whether men or women, that he might bring them to uh, bound to Jerusalem. He journeyed to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone uh, around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick uh, against the goads? So he's trembling and astonished, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, Arise and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and his eyes opened, and he saw no one. And they led him by the hand and brought him into uh, Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meant to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So I guess everything that we do today that's sinful is condoned by God because we don't have free will. When we reference this, Muslims actually are the closest thing to Protestants next to Cat. Like, Catholics and Protestants have two different theologies, and Muslims are closer to the Protestant theology than Catholics. It's actually very interesting, because Muslims do believe in free will. So, the Muslims believe on a different concept entirely of what the Gospel states. However, they distinguish an act of free will. We actively can choose to worship God and love God, or reject Him. Muslims are closer to Protestants, but have three major differences. And those three major differences are so big that that is why we could never, as Christians, be Muslims. So, the last thing I'm going to bring up about free will is if you say sorry to somebody, right? If somebody sins against you, and God is telling you to forgive them in the Bible, you will forgive your brother 70 uh, times 7. So, when we look at this aspect of God, and we understand that he's telling us to forgive people, but you're saying that we don't have free will and we're abided by the Spirit, then do our, our acceptance of apologies or apologies even mean anything? Does repentance mean anything? Does any of this stuff mean anything if we're repenting to God, yet God already condoned and um, have predestined us to do this? Simple concept by this is that in the Bible, I've just labeled many verses, many explanations of this. So, what I explained free will, I explained Calvinism, I explained Arminianism, I explained Lutherianism, I explained Catholicism. I explained all the different viewpoints, all the different theologies, Reformed theologies, uh, apologetics, 
um, on top of numerous different verses that have have pointed to choice, free will, and acceptance of God. Now, I also did explain that God is sovereign, and he does know and have all things in place. Jonah, for example, being a prophet, chose to defy God and run away from him, but he still had to complete his mission because God was punishing him by having a whale eat him. So, that's just to show you that our free will can be overwritten by what God wants us to do. If we choose to defy God, we can be punished, just as the Israelites are punished, just as Jonah was punished, just as Moses got punished. When we see all these aspects, all these different circumstances that have occurred throughout the Bible from Old to New Testament, everything that has pointed to free will, it's not the free will that we have to define. It's the aspect of God's sovereignty and does God predestine us to go to heaven or hell. The concept of it is pretty elusive. Now, as I explained, we will never understand God's mind. We'll never understand his thoughts in anything because literally Job has explained that and God has explained that. Your th and, and even in Isaiah, your thoughts are not my thoughts. We don't know God's thoughts. He has things ordained beyond us. But what I can assure you is that me actively taking the choice to do this podcast, if this is based on, free, if this is free will, then this is my own free will of doing it. But if Calvinism is free will, uh, if Calvinism is lack of free will, then does that mean God is acting through me to tell you that Calvinism is what you shouldn't be following? You should be following the actual Bible itself and stop looking at outside doctrines? I'll let you guys decide that. I'm not dismissing Calvinism as a bad thing. I'm not dismissing Armenianism as a bad thing. I'm not dismissing any, any of these concepts or theologies that people use to find Christ. If these are what people lead people to God, then it's a good thing. I'm not saying they're inherently bad. I'm saying if you are rooted in a specific doctrine, move out of the doctrine and start going to the Bible. The Bible is your bread. That's what you need to go to. If you're not going by the Bible and you're only going by a doctrine, you're going outside of and you're going outside of the Bible based on an interpretation. Now, you want my interpretation? It's very simple. Israel is the elect, as I already explained. The Israelites are based in Revelation as the um, 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. Those are the elect. The we are the church, the body of Christ. We are the ones that are basically brought into by his grace. We, this is outlined in the letters from Paul. Um, when we understand the epistles and we understand uh, the points of Acts, we understand this. Then we also understand that, the um, that God died for, or Jesus died for all of us, for all who believe. This is stretching out his grace to everybody. Just as seeds from a tree start growing and the trunk is there, if the Jews can't see beyond the trunk, then they're not going to see the branches that come out from the tree. 
This is referenced in a parallel to the tree of life. When we understand that Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we have the gospel, and what Paul would outline would be the tree of the knowledge of good. The gospel is the knowledge of good, and then the rest is the knowledge of evil. This is what we are understanding. So now when we're understanding the concepts of this, we have to understand predestination. Predestination is based on the people that came before Christ. The, the prophets, the kings, the judges, um, basically everyone that has been into this area before Christ was around. They are predestined to go to heaven because they still abided by God. So because they're predestined to go to heaven, we already know that they're going there. For it says in the Bible that King David did not ascend. So he was predestined to go to heaven, but he didn't ascend yet. So when we understand the, the predestination, that is when we understand where his election comes in, that is where we understand where we come in, that is understand everything. Again, when we hit the uh, when we hit the revelation and we look at the seven churches, if Calvinism is true, and I'm, again, I know I'm sounding like I'm picking on Calvinism. There's some parts of Calvinism I do really like, but when if Calvinism is fully true, then that means those seven churches are were had a, the elect in it, and they did not have to repent, but they said that they had to repent. just some food for thought so again to close this off I'm not dismissing reformed theology I'm saying if you were abided by specific doctrines if you're going by specific people who wrote the Bible anywhere be or wrote scriptures um, interpreting the Bible anywhere between the early church all the way up until the 15 16 1700s you know, even today, with the modern progressive, nihilistic, uh, you know, progressive churches, we have to understand that all the stuff that's today, that we're looking at as traditional and everything like that, we need to go back to the Bible. The Bible is what determines everything. Not Calvinism, not Arminianism, not Catholicism, not the catechisms, not... Anything outside of the Bible, anything that has been in the Bible that has been written outside is all part of theology that interprets what the Bible's trying to say. And this is why there's so many different versions of it and why Paul wrote to the Corinthian church to unite them, not divide them, but saying that we need to be patient with each other. It's as simple as that.